MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. I first heard the Adagio on the radio late one night in 1975, not long after the fall of Saigon to North Vietnamese communist forces, erasing two decades' worth of U.S. folly, heroism, and crimes in that terribly misbegotten war. My eyes got wet in that unforgettable moment of fusion of grief and relief amid the lugubrious and then soaring strings. I've had many an occasion since then to pull out the adagio. Two Septembers ago, amid the fall of Kabul, for example, and again this week, amid another year's sad commemorations marking the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. I wonder if there'll come a time when those moments are as lost in our misty memories as, say, Antietam. Not for people intensely caught up in the 9-11 tragedy, of course, including or perhaps especially people at the CIA responsible for defeating terrorist attacks. One of them was Cindy Storer, a valiant, even heroic in my book, former CIA expert on Al-Qaeda. All the frantic warnings of Cindy and her workmates that bin Laden was coming went up in smoke and fire on September 11, 2001, and she's here today to talk about it with me. Cindy Starr, it's so great to have you on Spy Talk. There were a lot of melancholy stories on the 22nd anniversary of the 911 attacks or 911 attacks featuring the losses suffered by New York firefighters and the families of people who died in the trade towers, the Pentagon, and of course, United Flight 93, which crashed in Pennsylvania after a passenger revolt and so on. Not so much about how CIA people who had been tracking Al-Qaeda for years, like yourself, were affected. How did you feel this week as yet another commemoration came and went? Oh, Jeff, that's such a good question. Uh, you know, there have been, in the past, there have been some podcasts and things with some of us to talk about it. Um, but you're right, we don't really talk about how we feel at the anniversary. And I have kind of mixed emotions about it. So part of it, um, I think of the people still working, and still, still in the fight, so to speak. I think of my friends who mm-hmm. are actually in New York and experienced, and Washington, D.C., and experienced both attacks. And for them, these anniversaries are more visceral because they were physically present and they saw things. And we know that's how the brain works. If you see and hear mm-hmm. something and feel something, it tends to last, yeah. be stronger. Yeah. And then for, for me and my colleagues from back in that time, so many of us still have... Um, some trauma left over from our time working counterterrorism. So, you know, it brings up a lot of stuff. <laughs> you mean working all of counterterrorism, not just the 9 11 attacks? Yeah, basically working all of counterterrorism. It hasn't been easy 
on on anyone. Obviously, we I think we understand a little bit better how folks in the military might be feeling um, about going to war and dealing with some of these issues. But you know, CIA officers have also been on the front lines. They've been working with assets all through this time. They've had friends die uh, in these you know various operations, uh, including someone I knew. Um, they've done things that in wartime, everybody does things that they kind of wish they hadn't. And there's, there's a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And so I occasionally hear from people who, you know, who are just trying to work through all of it. It's not easy. Mm, no, it is not easy for anyone who's been to war. There's a special kind of psychological terror or traumatizing, I should say, among the analysts who specialize in Al Qaeda, like yourself. There does seem to be, I think all of us have some form of lingering trauma. Of course, people are different, so they experience things differently. But whenever I talk to my former colleagues, we're all, we're all living with something. It's not easy at all. Um, not everybody mm. was affected as badly as I have been. Again, there are personality differences, but it, it's still meaningful for everyone. Sure. Can I ask you to take us back to what you were doing on the morning of the attacks and in the following days. You told me once that there was panic at agency headquarters on the day of the attack. That's completely understandable, of course. Well, I got back to the office. I was on a rotation and I got back to the office in the fall of 2000. And already the tension in the office was very high. And partly that's because everybody was working against the millennium plots. So there was that. And that was two years in a row that everybody was just on this high alert. And then they were starting to follow, um, on the operations side, starting to follow these guys who were meeting in Malaysia and traveling around the world, trying to figure out what it was that they were planning and what they were up to. Um, and the closer we got to summer, uh, the more concerning it got for everyone. Uh, Al-Qaeda started talking about, you know, because we get intercepts and stuff too, and they're starting to talk about doing something Olympic-sized and Armageddon, and so everybody's really worried because we can't seem to get a handle on it, you know, trying to run down assets, talk to our foreign partners, um, surveil meetings, whatever it takes, right? And, and just weren't getting enough of the details. And so everybody was really worried. And I think I mentioned one of our, uh, we, some of us were taking, the analysts were taking a kind of condensed graduate course from Martha Crenshaw, who's wonderful. And uh, Taking a graduate course while you were working, while you we were, were working, taking right. academic courses. Uh, and you're taking graduate courses in what? So she came in at, at lunchtime, actually, um, and taught us a condensed course. So people who wanted to go, go in and attend for, I can't remember how long it was, an hour or two um, at a time, which was great. But people started, you know, not being able to come to meetings or being called out in the middle of a, of a class or whatever. And she was seeing what she would call almost, almost panic. It was very tense. And it wasn't panic in that we weren't able to do anything. It was more, you know, this sort of terrible fear that you weren't going to be able to do enough, fast enough. Hmm. So you knew something big was coming. I remember walking, dog walking in the park with a, a, a senior middle level CIA official uh, in the summer of 2001. And he was saying, it's coming. They are coming big time. Uh, of course, he didn't go into details because it was classified. But uh, there was a famous CIA warning, Al-Qaeda or bin Laden oh, yeah. determined to strike in the U.S. 
it's been gone over again and again and again how the White House didn't really take these warnings uh, seriously or didn't didn't grasp the significance of it. Um, let me ask you first, um, how is it that you weren't able to learn about the specifics of the attack? There were so many people involved, so many financial transactions involved um, in this really, you have to say, spectacular terrorist attack involving so many people, places, flight schools, etc. I'm not looking to point the finger of blame here. I'm just asking for your explanation. How, how could you miss that? Yeah, no, it's, it's you know, that question is going to be asked forever. Uh, so there's several points here. One is, as my good friend Gina Bennett says, uh, it may look like several points to you that are easy to connect, but we were drowning in a sea. It wasn't as much data as we got after 9-11. But we were still getting threats every day. We were running down leads every day, and we still had a pretty small staff. Uh, so it was very hard mm. to do that. So that's one thing. If you don't, when you have a small staff like that, if you or in any staff, if you don't assign someone to follow each individual thread and be responsible for it, then stuff's going to fall through the cracks. So there were people who were following these threads about these meetings and these guys traveling around the world. That was happening, but. The second, and you were wondering. Um, I followed some of it. I was looking at Afghanistan for other reasons, um, and I was seeing one piece of that. Um, so, but then the other problem is that because ultimately they ended up doing this in the United States, there's the infamous wall between the FBI and the CIA, and I think a lot of people still don't understand that even when you wanted to share things, there was still. A difficulty doing it because at the FBI, you had the criminal side and you had the foreign intelligence side, and they weren't supposed to share information with each other before 9-11. And then you're at CIA trying to figure out who's the right person to share this information with. And then their computer system was mm. terrible. So you'd have to actually fax something over and hope it got to the right person. It was, it was like that. Mm. So um, it was really difficult. And it's not that people didn't try. It was just difficult. And then, you know, let's be honest, there's some bad blood between the FBI and the CIA as well. And um, some worry about messing up each other's cases. And, you know, there's always that kind of thing going on. So I think between a certain level of distrust and the bureaucratic system and the, the way the law was interpreted at the time and the lack of personnel, I mean, honestly, I think it would have been a miracle if we figured it out. Sure. Hmm. Still disturbing. Um, after all these years, that prompts me to ask you uh, about a story that we ran in March uh, about uh, an investigator from the military commissions in Guantanamo who uh, interviewed several people involved in uh, counterterrorism. And several FBI agents made signed statements that they suspected that one reason CIA was not telling FBI about the presence of the future hijackers in the country is that CIA was trying to run a covert operation in conjunction with the Saudis to double uh, these Al Qaeda terrorists to to recruit them and to become moles for us. What what do you think of that? You know, I wasn't in the operations unit, so I can't say with a hundred percent certainty. But I certainly never got even a hint of that, not even a whiff of that. Um, in the, you know, from where I was sitting in the, in the CT and I knew a lot of these folks working on the operations side and understood what they were doing. And 
that just, that didn't seem like that was happening at all. I could be wrong. I mean, we may find out in 50 years from now that that was happening. I don't know, but I certainly didn't see any sign of it. And uh, I think people have a tendency to leap to what seems like the, the easiest explanation or the worst possible explanation when, when really all the things I described are sufficient to, to explain what was happening. Um, and then, and then you have to add in the relationship with the Saudis, which was always touchy. Uh, it was very touchy between, um, the UBL folks and, and the Saudis, because obviously the CIA had been trying to run down threats from folks in Saudi Arabia for a long time and not getting a lot of cooperation. Right, right. We had actually a partnership with the Saudis on counterterrorism. I always w was amused by that in the 1990s when I was tracking it. And I thought, what kind of partnership is that? And of course, it turns out that what, 19 out of the 21 hijackers were Saudis? Yeah. And afterwards, it was even in that article that the Saudis just brought like everything they knew about Al-Qaeda and dumped it on us, right? Well, so did the Jordanians and, and some others, right? They just oh yeah, we had all this stuff that we didn't share with you because we didn't think it was important. Now you've had a tragedy. Here's all the information. I mean, that could have made mm -hmm. a difference beforehand. It's hard to say. So, you know, here we are, we don't have social media, right? This is pre 9-11. I think a lot of people don't understand that Facebook, all that stuff existed. Um, we didn't have mm -hmm. good database. The kind of like, sort of AI, people are talking about it now, but things to do, link analysis and stuff for you, that didn't exist. We're doing all of it by hand. Um, so I don't mm. think people understood the man hours that went into just doing the basics before you could even start mm. to draw connections. You, you mentioned before how small the Al-Qaeda unit, let's call it, was the number of people working on the Al-Qaeda target. Why was it so small? When the threat, the looming threat seems so big, or is that just hindsight? No, it's a really good question. Every new issue takes a long time to get ramped up on. And so, whereas I was one analyst and there was a small operations team in 1998, <laughs> and then after those bombings, both of those groups grew. The embassy, embassy bombings, and uh, yeah. then came the USS Cole bombing. Right. Yes, thank you. Especially yeah. after the embassy bombing. So the analytical force grew and the operations force grew, but not commensurate with combating a worldwide organization. Right. And this is what the, the, one of the things I kept mm. trying to emphasize to people when they asked, how many people do you need? I said, how many people do we need to, against the Soviet Union? You know, now add more because these guys are operating in the dark. Um. It was hard. And so we, we could only get a few more people and a few more resources sort of as time went by. And then I remember hearing um, Director Tennant say later, and I don't remember the context, I don't remember if it was in his book or in a talk, um, but he said he wished he had just plussed up the agency and asked Congress for forgiveness later because apparently they wouldn't allow him to add the slots that were needed to counterterrorism. Uh, I have to ask you to repeat that. Yes. So I heard that. I did, yeah. Tenet, so that tenant asked for more people to work on Al Qaeda. He yeah. says he asked for more people to work on Al Qaeda, but Congress didn't give him the extra money for it. Yeah, that's what it sounded like to me. You know, he said he wished he had just done what he needed to do in the heck with Congress. So. Hmm. Is that post nine eleven? Rational as I, uh, or ass covering, let's put it that way. I think way. when it comes to stating facts like that is probably true. 
Um, you know, is that of course every probably, probably true. true? I mean, I I don't see why it wouldn't have been. He was running around trying to convince people we needed we needed everything, right? We needed money, we needed people, we needed laws to be changed, we needed all kinds of things that didn't happen. Even mm, the operations officers will say that, and they've written it in their books. So, yeah. Everyone's hair, everyone concerned about Al Qaeda, the, the phrases used, their hair was on fire yeah. all summer before the attacks. Yeah. And, you know, some of this can be blamed on, on the new administration. Uh, and I'm not being partisan political here at all. But what happened is that whenever you get a new administration, they want to review all the policies of the old administration before they do anything, especially when you're switching from one party to the next. And these guys were a bunch of old cold warriors coming in that had no understanding of this issue whatsoever. And so they took, they undertook a policy review that finished on September 9th or 10th. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the White House, the Bush White House had dragged its heels on assembling its Homeland Security Committee uh, uh, in the National Security Council, dragged its heels for months and months ever since they took office on assembling that group. And I think they were scheduled to be that morning of the attacks. It was under Vice President Cheney. Interesting. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, one of the things we know about crises is that anything that you have prepared ahead of time that didn't get fully approved, the minute the crisis hits, it just all gets approved like overnight, right? Mm. So it's not surprising to me that that was the case. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I didn't, I hadn't read that information, but um, DHS was stood up so quickly that you knew those plans had to already be in place. Yeah, that was a big door closing after all the horses were out. Yeah, absolutely. And laws are changed. Patriot Act was the same thing. We already mm -hmm. had all the requests for legislative changes. There has been some reporting and speculation, and I think uh, it's in it's included in a new forthcoming book in which you are a hero, by the way. No, which I haven't read yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Sisterhood, The Secret History of Women at the CIA by Lisa Monday, Mundy. Uh, I've been reading the advanced copy, and it's it's just terrific. And there's a suggestion in there that middle management, senior middle management, wasn't taking Al Qaeda seriously enough from you folks. Uh, is that accurate? I think that's true, um, and it had been true all along. So people on the yeah, you know, I'm going to go into professor mode again. Um, it tends to be true of bureaucratic organizations that the people on the and the military, the people on the ground, get it. People at the top get it because both ends are responsible for things happening. And the folks in the middle are pushing things up and down the chain and they're sort of the last to catch on. That's mm -hmm. usually the case. Uh, and, and you would think that after the millennium attacks and the 98 attacks that people would have would realize what was happening. But they just, um, some of them just didn't. Yeah, there was, not that there wasn't footsteps. I mean, again, the embassy bombings in 1998 in Africa, for those okay. who don't remember or weren't around. And then the attack on the USS Cole and other things going on, previous uh, plots to use airline, uh, to hijack airliners and so on. So there's plenty of flashing really? lights. So it's, it's been said many times. Um, well, and that's when Tina said after the 98 attacks that we were at war. Now his authority, even though he was director of central intelligence, his authority was still limited. So there's only so much he could do. Um, with regard to other agencies. And even within the CIA, you had whole directorates that just weren't interested. Some some were, some weren't. Um, so mm -hmm. it wasn't an easy 
ball to roll uphill, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's like you say, very typical in large organizations. Uh, the grunts in the field know what's really going on and trying to get that message up to the top is, is very, very difficult. I would say that Afghanistan, Iraq and Afghanistan are two principal examples of people saying, don't do this, don't do this, this is wrong, and and policymakers just overriding. Well, them. and the whole Afghan adventure from the beginning, uh, not that we weren't going to go in and try to get the law, I mean, that was always going to happen. But I remember True. my British colleagues, you know, I used to tease them back in the day when I was worked more closely on Afghanistan that they lost to the Afghans three times. And they looked at me and they said, <laughs> now it's your right. turn. Nobody wins against the Afghans. Why do we do that? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like we didn't learn from the Soviet experience, you know. And if you if you read the memoirs of former Soviet intelligence officers, they'll say they were warning Moscow, don't don't dig in here. This is a graveyard of empires, as it's called. Exactly. And we're the latest empire. Um, so, but we went in both feet. We we weren't satisfied with just getting rid of Al Qaeda, chasing them out of Kabul. We went in deep. We don't need to relive all that uh, horrible stuff. Let me ask you, do you stay in touch with your former CIA colleagues? Do you have a kind of sisterhood outside the office? I stay in touch with a couple of them. I've been out of the agency so long that it's it's hard to trace where people went and stay in touch. So I know the others mm. are more in touch than I am, but there's a few that I still talk to. And it's just out of friendship. It's not mulling over old issues. No, it's mostly just out of friendship. Um, and sometimes to experience things together, whether it's in person or virtually. But again, it's a it's a sisterhood thing. It's a friendship thing. Mm, and you're keepers of secrets as well. I mean, you have heads full of deeply classified information, even now, years later, about sources and methods and so on. We do, uh, to some extent. There's always secrets, right? It's amazing to me how much, though, has been um, declassified or you know, open, made open since, since that time. Cause it's been, you know, it's been 20 years. So a lot more has come out than certainly I would have expected. Hmm. I, I know from talking to you before that you still uh, have this lingering sadness and, and wounds from what happened on uh, 9-11 and, uh, and previously with regard to Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. That That's a heavy burden to to carry after all these years. I have as much the same about my experience in Vietnam as uh, other Vietnam veterans do. And I was, you know, intelligence there and I saw many of the same things that you saw occur at CIA, um, manipulating intelligence, uh, not taking warning seriously and so on and just pulling my hair out, you know, which is why I didn't stay in that line of work. And um, I know, and I it's know. Hard. Yeah, no, and I know soldiers who were doing that in Afghanistan. Now I have a lot of students who told me personal stories about it. So, yeah, and there are things. There's certain things that can set you off and kind of reignite the trauma. Yeah, and sometimes mm. you just never know what it's going to be. You get caught by surprise. <laughs> what is it for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's a lot of things actually. Still, um, I don't think I'm ever going to work in an office again. For instance, in an office again. Yeah, I don't think so. I can't. I can't take the manipulation and the the pettiness and the you know trying to be perfect for people who don't back you up and all those kinds of things that happen. And I just can't do it. I don't have the trust in people anymore to do that. Mm, that's horrible. 
Yeah. Um, and that comes from that searing experience with a life and death issue of uh, the Al Qaeda violence. Mm. Now, you're, you're teaching courses uh, at Johns Hopkins and UTEP, the University of Texas at El Paso. I know El Paso well. I spent a year in language school. Oh, wonderful. Language school there, studying Vietnamese oh. in El Paso, of all, of all places. I have a friend from El Paso, so I went there once for her wedding. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your students? You're teaching intelligence issues, of course. I know. Um, what are your students like? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I haven't taught undergrads in a few years. So getting back into that is is interesting for me. It's so different. My graduate students from Johns Hopkins are mostly professionals already. Some are already in intelligence. A lot of them are military. Um, some of them are, I mean, I've had ex-CEOs of companies and all kinds of things as students hmm. and so, and journalists and aid workers. And so our conversations are always fascinating. And I learn from them, I think, almost as much as they learn from me. I mean, it's really been a great experience teaching them. And I do it entirely online. Um, and we still manage to have these great conversations. The undergrads, you know, they're undergraduates. A lot of them, because they live in El Paso, they're interested in going into um, border protection hmm. and, and police and things like that, which totally makes sense given where they live. Um, but it's something that I don't know as much about, so I'm trying to educate myself so I can help them. <laughs> well, border protection, what a mess that is. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to go there. So No, and I haven't gone there with my students yet. I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> but I'm just trying to learn about it more because they live it every day. Sure. You know, I used to go uh, over the border and walk around, get dinner. <laughs> I did too when I visited my friend in El Paso. Yeah. Yeah. Juarez used to be a safe place to walk around. That was a long time ago. But there was always such a dichotomy. I remember driving over the bridge from El Paso into Juarez, or even just looking across the river. And you look to your right, or your whatever side of the city's on, let's say you're looking to your right, and there's this modern city with raised highways and shopping malls. And you look to your left, and there's dust, mm -hmm. dust and huts. And just the difference was so striking, mm -hmm. uh, even going into Juarez. Mm -hmm. Kind of brings home why people might want a different life. Yeah. The bright lights of the North, as a former Jamaican prime minister put it to me, uh, you can't compete with the bright lights of the North. And that's why people sure. live, uh, leave. They want uh, uh, a life here, like the handyman I have who came here illegally from Guatemala years ago. Now he has a green card and he, he's uh, been very successful in his business. So some of your students, your young students, want to join CIA. What do you tell them? Well, I just, you know, I answer their questions. Um, I tell them it's the greatest job we'll ever have, but it's also really hard. Hard how? Well, it's hard. So what we do in the program, we try to, we emphasize all the cognitive thing, you know, the teaching and all the history and the cognitive things that you need to know. But we also emphasize ethics and we talk about the analyst policymaker relationship. So in teaching history, we're also teaching, like, this is, this is what you can expect in terms of what it's like to try to work on these issues. And I'll, again, a lot of them already know some of that already. But I just, I want my students to go into this knowing more than I did and being better prepared for it than I was when I went in. I mean, it's great. I loved it, but. And what's the main lesson? What's the main lesson? 
You know, it's funny. A lot of us have been talking about this lately. And one of the things that I regret is not finding a mentor early in my career. I know that sounds crazy, um, but nope, it's a hard it's me. a hard thing to navigate any bureaucracy and then CIA. You've got moral issues and you've got, in my case, working on a subject matter that people didn't care about. So when I was assigned a mentor, my mentor wasn't very helpful because she'd never done anything like this before. Mm. Um, and I just, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to find people outside of your chain of command who can help you when things get hard because they will. Well, those students are lucky to have you, to know you, uh, and to uh, give them all the warning signs and the paths toward, toward success. In fact, uh, Cindy Starr, I think the nation owes you a debt of gratitude, you and the other women who worked on Al-Qaeda, worked so assiduously, so desperately to stop these attacks that were coming, and it's not your fault that the attacks happened. Uh, it's a team sport, as they say, and you guys were the A team, and you, 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 you did everything you could possibly have done to stop those attacks coming, so we're grateful for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I also want um, I, I always want to mention the men who worked on this as well. Um, one mm -hmm. of the reasons we amplified this issue of it being mostly a women, mostly, not entirely, um, is because nobody thought women did this job at all. You, know, you, you wouldn't get hmm. any, you wouldn't get people out in the world talking about women doing this work. And they would always go to men for the interviews and they were usually men who had nothing to do with it. So we wanted to make it clear to people that women do these jobs, that, you know, women are critical for doing these jobs. And so I, in doing that, I'm sometimes afraid that we don't give the men enough credit and that worries me. Because, um, like you said, mm. it is a team sport. <laughs> I'm not worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cindy Starr, so great to have you on the Spy Talk podcast. Thanks so much for carving out some special time for us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jeff. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive at the MSW Network or on Amazon, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please check out the Spy Talk news site on Substack, where our deeply experienced contributing writers offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses. Just Google Spy Talk and you'll find your way there. This edition of the Spy Talk podcast, like all the others, was smoothly produced by Kanai at MSW Media with expert editing from Molly Hockey. Oh, and by the way, that version of Adagio you've been hearing was performed by the Vienna Philharmonic in 2019 under the baton of Gustavo Dudamel. That's it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Stein. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.